Transportation Matters, the CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. Welcome to our new episode of Transportation Matters. My name is Martin Daum. I'm the CEO of Daimler Trucks and Buses, and I hope all of you are well and healthy. Thank you all so much for being with us again. I'm also this year's chairman of the Commercial Vehicle Board of ATSEA, the European Automobile Manufacturers Association. So in this episode, I will also speak on behalf of Europe's truck industry. Because the topic we cover today is crucial for our entire industry, we will talk about the CO2-neutral road transport of the future, and we will focus on a factor that is key for making CO2-neutral transport a success. CO2-neutral transport will only be successful if it is competitive with diesel-powered transport. Today, this is not the case. Today, battery and fuel cell trucks and buses are considerably more expensive than normal conventional vehicles. And despite all efforts of AMs, this will not change in the foreseeable future. But our customers can only buy CO2-neutral trucks and buses if they are economically competitive, if there is cost parity. To achieve that, we need the right regulatory framework. We need government invention. But what exactly do governance need to do? And what are they willing to do? I'm very glad that we've got the perfect guest to discuss these questions. Professor Ottmar Edenhofer. Ottmar, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for the invitation, Martin. It's, it's great to be here. Ottmar is Director and Chief Economist of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. He's one of the world's leading experts on economics of climate change. He, for example, led the so-called Fifth Assessment Report on Climate Change Mitigation that laid the scientific basis for the Paris Agreement in 2015. Our industry association, ATSEA, also works with his Potsdam Institute, and the topic is the same as the topic of this episode, the right regulatory framework for competitive CO2-neutral transport. But before we dive deep into that heavy topic of government regulations and climate change and climate protections, I would like to go a little bit back into your biography because when preparing for that podcast, I was really fascinating about your life prior, your dedication to climate. You had been part of the Jesuit order and you worked in Bosnia during the civil war. How was that for a life experience? Yeah, this was a, a very life-changing and a life-transformative experience. And uh, as a young Jesuit, I was dedicated to the task to organize a humanitarian aid organization during the war in the middle of a deep and a heavy ethnical conflict uh, between the Serbs, the Croatian and, and the Muslims. And for me, as a, a typical Western European youngster, uh, I was completely shocked to see that uh, two hours flight distance away from Frankfurt, there was such a, an intense ethnical conflict with 100,000 of killed people. And uh, so I tried to help to reconcile the three groups together and we organized humanitarian aid. I supported a Muslim hospital uh, in Tuzla. And for me, this was uh, the first experience that I realized that the prospect so everything after the breakdown of the Iron Wall, 
uh, will become nice and wonderful, this will not materialize. So we are living in a in a very and in a tough uh, situation. And what I learned there is basically how important it is that you have a well-functioning society, you have a reasonable state. Uh, otherwise, there is a, a fundamental collapse of all the civilization standards, even within Europe. And for me, this was such an important aspect uh, that I realized uh, we have to think very, very carefully about the civil society and also about a reasonable public, which does not allow to disseminate too much fake news and too much uh, hatred. I think this is fascinating. But let me allow another question. You know, starting at young age on civil aid in a, in a pretty difficult conflict, And then ending up working and researching on climate change. That's not necessarily something which you would call next door. That's, uh, this seems like a longer journey. It was a longer journey, but you are right. So after that experience, I want to understand a little bit more economics, social conflicts. I did my PhD in, in economics. And I thought uh, a well-functioning economy and a well-functioning society is very important for peace. And then during my PhD, I became increasingly aware of the climate change issue. And I was not only interested in the natural science part, I was in particular interested in the social and science part and in the economics, because I had the feeling that climate change has a huge potential to destabilize societies in particular in the Southern Hemisphere. And I thought it is worthwhile to think about this issue uh, very, very carefully. So it was not next door, but on the other hand, it has a lot of common properties. And uh, I covered a lot of common ground between ethnic conflicts and climate change and social conflicts. And, and I can relate to that uh, totally and completely because that's a little bit my journey as well. If, if climate change would be just a theoretical or a scientific problem, we could solve it. But I see the, the, the human part behind, you know, if, if really hundreds of thousands of square kilometers of land becomes inhabitable, where people can't live anymore from the land and they would then start migration or, or all that turmoil that comes on top of that. This is, in my opinion, what we can't cope with. So we have to avoid that heating up of the earth. Yeah. And that's about the motivation of, of me and my company as well, uh, to do whatever is necessary to fight that climate change. So now we come back to our, our core topic. What to do so CO2-free transport is competitive? Because one thing I hear often from my customers is, as long as you can sell us an electric truck or a fuel cell truck for the price of a diesel truck, as then we would buy it. So if you break that cycle of a, of a, of a society, of an economic system that supports and rewards efficiency, you have to do something different. And then you can basically do three things. You can just prohibit, let's focus here on diesel. Gasoline would be the same story. You can just prohibit diesel or you can subsidize CO2 neutral transport or you can make diesel more expensive through carbon pricing. How do you relate to those three alternatives or is there any fourth one? I would uh, add something. So, of course, there is energy density and energy storage, which makes the fossil fuel use such a splendid opportunity in the 19th century. There's an additional thing, and this is the sheer enormous supply of the fossil fuels. So we should acknowledge that 
we are not running out of fossil fuels, right? Mm. Given the limiting disposal space of the atmosphere, we have even an oversupply of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So, and the reasoning that we are running out of fossil fuels and therefore we have to convert and uh, transform our economies is, is completely wrong. So because of the scarcity, the, the only reason why we should do this is the limiting disposal space of the atmosphere and the risk of dangerous climate change. So that said, I fully agree what you said. It's basically a ban on the use of fossil fuels. It's carbon pricing or subsidizing the alternatives. I'm in favor of carbon pricing, and I would like to explain you why. So why is subsidizing the alternatives not the right way? If you subsidize all the alternatives, the carbon-free alternatives, this makes, in the end, fossil fuels even cheaper. So there is no incentive. So you, you might subsidize a few carbon-free technologies or alternatives, but this creates a rebound effect that people have still an incentive to use the fossil fuels. Then a ban is, is also not my preferred option because, for example, if you ban the combustion engine, what will happen? Of course, if you ban the, the new cars or the new engines, so you have some impact on investments, but at the same time, you make the old car fleet even more valuable. I mean, if carbon pricing is the way to go, and I agree with you, the subsidizing piece is, is not sustainable at all. And in my opinion, it becomes at one point of time far too expensive to sustain that. But if we go with, with carbon pricing, what are the possibilities we have with carbon pricing? We, for example, as Daimler, and I know that ASEA is going in the same direction, wants a CO2-based toll for roads for trucks. But that is just one possibility. What would be your proposal? So what are the alternatives we have to go forward? There are a few. And the first thing what we could do is we could basically tax or price oil and gas whenever it enters to the economic sectors. So a kind of an upstream system. Uh, and there is now a debate in the EU to build up a second European emissions trading scheme, which consists of such an upstream system and prices the fossil fuels in particular, oil and gas. So that would be the first step. I'm not against subsidizing carbon-free alternatives as with a clear sunset clause. So there's a lot of learning by doing. There is a, a potential of cost reduction as a temporary measure that might complement uh, a carbon pricing. So what you have in mind with uh, ASEA, which is basically a CO2-based toll, that might be an, an option. But first of all, I would be in favor of a second uh, European emissions trading scheme because it's quite relatively simple uh, to be established. And this allows us a European-wide cap. And this cap is then consistent uh, what the EU has uh, announced, that because the EU wants to reduce the emissions by 2030 around 55% and wants to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050, so this would imply a, a significant increase of the CO2 prices in transport building and in the heating sector. But before we go to the trading system, why not just introducing the easiest of all systems? And, and if you would have asked me two years ago, it was always my proposal to politicians where I said, if you would announce today that every January 1st, there's five cents per liter gasoline or diesel added tax, and it's between now and eternity. Every January 1st, 5 cents or 10 cents, pick whatever you want. 
uh, that would have made diesel non-competitive latest by 2040. Uh, and it wouldn't have come as a shock. Everyone would be able to plan ahead and calculate ahead. I think what I propose is very close to that because my proposal is that in this European emissions trading scheme, we should basically introduce a kind of a minimum price path, which is completely uh, foreseeable. And uh, we should discuss in a minute how large is or how high is the probability that politicians can commit to such a price path. That's a different thing. What you need in industry is stable expectations about the price path. No doubt about this. But why do we need an ETS at the European level? We, we cannot legally, from the constitutional side, introduce a, a carbon tax-like scheme. So we have to rely on emissions trading. Otherwise, it is not uh, implementable. But if it is amended with this uh, kind of minimum price path, this would give you in the industry stable expectations. And it would be at the same time consistent uh, with the long-term goal of carbon neutrality by 2050. But if we go to that, such a trading system, who is the first one to have to pay the tax? The one who imports or, or yes. the, the oil, or is it the one who purchases the diesel, or is it the one who burns it at the end, or is it the end user who buys a product where some uh, CO2 emissions is in? It's not the last one, but the first one who has to pay is the one who, for example, imports gas or oil, right? Okay. That's the first one. This will be passed through in the end to the consumer. Therefore, the low-income households have to be compensated for this to a certain extent. No doubt about this, but this would be my preferred option. It's a quite easy system. If you do it upstream, you have basically included all the relevant sectors very quickly. And abs upstream is certainly, upstream means for the listener, the one who really produces uh, the initial source of CO2. It's always easier to collect it there than downstream where it meanders in, in thousands different ways. Uh, but what would you include in that upstream tax? Just the import or the production of oil? Or, or Whenever oil, gas or coal comes into the system, the only thing what we have to do is we have to avoid double charges because we have already an ETS system for power and industry. So, but this can be done quite easily, but this would be based fundamentally on all the, the fossil fuels. And this has an enormous advantage because you have included the sectors and you have included also some important parts of the agricultural sector. So this is a quite lean and easy system, easy to be implemented in very short notice. Why the agricultural sector? Because the agricultural sector uses also to a large extent gas and oil for their production. So you have not then covered the other greenhouse gases, but to a certain extent, you have also partially covered the agricultural sector. And why do you call that then an ETS, uh, emission trading system? Where is the trade piece coming to? Uh, that's a brilliant question. So It is basically, um, so everybody who, for example, wants to buy or import oil or gas has to buy a permit. And this is then consistent with a cap. And you can buy fundamentally the permits among uh, the agents at the upstream system. So there, there will be trade, uh, in particular between refineries and, and the gas importers. It is at the European scale, probably a quite liquid system. And... Uh, You, you, you might ask the question, why not then introduce a tax? And I would be in favor of a tax, but a tax cannot be implemented from a constitutional point of view. 
But if that certificate that you trade has a certain value, at one point of time, someone gets the proceeds for the value, you know? Exactly. So who pays it, it's clear, but who gets the proceeds at the end? So this is basically what will happen about the revenues. Okay, the idea is that the permits will be auctioned and the auction permits, it will get back to the government. Okay. Which government? It will be a split between the EU level and the member states. And this is indeed one of the huge distributional conflicts, which is now on the table at the EU level. In the end, who gets the revenues? But the revenues, many people think about to use the revenues to pay back the European debt. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we talk now always about a European system. Uh, one argument I often hear, because it ultimately makes road transport in the EU more expensive, One of the biggest sources for commercial transportation traffic is when goods go from a supplier to another supplier to a third supplier until it finally gets to a, to a final assembly where then the consumer buys from it. So if you make transportation more expensive, then the value change move outside of Europe, you know, because not now not only just labor is more expensive, now transportation gets more expensive. So people build the product outside Europe and then import the readily built and then you pay the last mile from the harbor to the shop. Means at the end, the world is not safe because now someone else burns the oil and the gas instead we Europeans. This is what is called the risk of carbon leakage. This is a real risk. And there are two answers to that. The first answer, the short-term answer, which is now heavily discussed at the European level, is to impose a carbon border tax in order to protect the European industry, in particular the industry which has a high energy intensity and which is exposed to international competition. But from my point of view, this is only an intermediate step. A much more important step is now to negotiate with the US and with China on carbon pricing. So we need a carbon pricing scheme in the next decade within the G3. So that's absolutely important. If you look at our international trade, Europe is a net importer of goods and capital and at the same time a net importer of emissions from China. So if we cannot convince China also to put a carbon price on their value chain, we will not win. But you would say it's enough then if Europe, US, China, I would say Japan, most likely to follow as well, if those economic powerhouses uh, start the whole. It's not sufficient. It's not the end point, but it is definitely the starting point. If you look, for example, at, at Asia, in particular on South Asia, countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, they are investing a lot in coal, still in coal. And their fiscal rescue and stimulus packages are full of brown investments, so to say. And if they will build all the planned coal fire plants and continue to operate during the economic lifetime, so we will close the door to any meaningful climate protection forever. So in the next decade, we have to talk to them. We have to provide loans. We have to provide conditional transfers. Uh, to kick off a coal phase out in this region. And for that international spread, I think I have comforting experiences when we look at other emission standards on, on engines, for example. For example, where yeah. we, It took us uh, in Europe about uh, 15 years to go from Euro 1 to Euro 6. And India is doing the same thing, you know, in less than five years. So it's really 
once a technology is available, I would say the introduction is in, in, even in, in poor countries coming fast because the benefits are visible and the people can experience it immediately. But let me uh, add here one thing, because you, you mentioned the performance standards in the car industry. And from my point of view, uh, there is no need and we shouldn't abandon the performance standards. But the performance standards are a very good example. The performance standards have a strong incentive when you buy a car. So then you are incentivized uh, the car with that, with the best standard. But on the other hand, what we have seen over the last even, I would say, 20 years Uh, in the transport sector, the emissions are not declining and the performance standards have not basically delivered. And this is quite obvious. So you can increase the performance standards, but you cannot control the driving behavior of people and therefore complementing performance standards with carbon pricing is from my point of view, a very good way forward. When you look at that pricing scheme for such an emission trading system, what, what are your key principles for that pricing scheme? Going in with a shock, going in with, uh, with very low and then increasing it over time, uh, what would be your, uh, let's say, best practice proposal? My best practice proposal would be start with a, at a moderate level and then increase it and stick to the price path. Or at least tell people whenever you have to adjust the price path. Because to be honest, we did a lot of calculations of what would be the reasonable price path to achieve the emission reduction. And nobody knows that exactly. There's a huge uncertainty range. And why is this uncertainty range? We don't know exactly the technology. So predicting technologies is very hard to do. And we want to have a market in order to incentivize the best technologies. This cannot be anticipated by a regulator and shouldn't be anticipated by a regulator. You are the people in the industry who know best. Uh, what kind of technology has to be and should be implemented. So in that sense, I would start with a moderate level and then increase it. Uh, I would go for this quantity system, but allow for a minimum price in order to make the whole uh, system relatively reliable and stable. But here's one thing which I would like to highlight. And this is something which is enormously important. Whatever we do, You in the industry and the consumers have to rely on the announcement of the politicians. Absolutely. And commitment of the politicians is very important. And I, and I can only support that. I think the moderate start and then the continuous increase is necessary to avoid any economic shock for the entire system. However, I'm not concerned if you end up too high, which only makes on the other side Uh, diesel less attractive, which in my opinion is not a problem at all. I always tell there are certain applications where I have the feeling uh, even in, in the year 2050 or so, people should use for those type of trucks diesel, which has no negative impact on the climate at all. Like if you, we, we build those famous forest firefighting unimogs, which transport mm -hmm. five tons of water into a forest fire, which in my opinion, doesn't matter whether they, those guys drive with diesel uh, better than have a thousand liter water with you than a thousand kilogram yeah. of batteries. Uh, but these are so, so few trucks with so little mileage every year. They don't matter, yeah. But with a, with a carbon tax, it would be expensive, yes. But a forest fire is anyhow expensive, so that doesn't matter. But if you end up too high, then uh, the, the entire industry is going because total cost of ownership is so important. Will switch to zero emission, and they might switch far faster 
than ever regulators might anticipate that. So that is, in my opinion, not the ultimate problem. But when I talk with our customers, let's say the big transportation companies who run a thousand trucks, which run a hundred thousand kilometers a year. Yeah. So they could be easily every one customer be responsible for a hundred million road kilometers driven by every year. And when I talk with those customers, one of their biggest arguments is if you go such a route, then transportation gets prohibitively expensive. So you would harm my business. So what, what would be your answer to those customers or their uh, uh, trade associations respectively? I think we should be honest here. So I, the transport will become much more expensive. So there is no doubt about this. And, and this is not only transport, also the other sectors. So heating will also be more expensive. So we, we might reduce the costs over time a bit or even significantly, but this is something which is indeed an, an issue. So in the end, what we can do is we can compensate the customers to a certain extent. And the interesting thing is compensating customers or uh, consumers. This does not undo uh, the effect of the increasing prices because the compensation is not based on their emission, it's based on their income. But by and large, I would say uh, we have to accept this, and it would be, from my point of view, not really uh, a good thing uh, to hide that some parts of transport will become more expensive. And it potentially might avoid some transport, which is considered today sometimes in critical debates as unnecessary, like taking shrimp in Hamburg, uh, ship them to southern Spain to get them cleaned up and then ship them back to Hamburg for consumption. Exactly. I believe that such a scheme will change the geographic of the value chains. My, my grandma would have loved that because she was always complaining that we're eating strawberries in October and apples in April. And she said the, the human order is to eat strawberries in April and apples in October. Yeah, and not, uh, not the other way around. Yeah. Not the other way around, which sometimes you have the feeling if you go in a supermarket, it's just, uh, it's more attractive to eat them. When we look at that system now, it makes so much sense. How much uh, chances do you give that in the current uh, political climate? Sometimes you have the feeling in, in the EU, everything goes at snail's pace, even if it's the right thing to do. Yeah, so that's a, a very good question. By June, uh, the EU Commission will come up with a proposal and uh, the debate is now uh, ongoing and it's quite interesting. I would give a second uh, ETS system a relatively good chance. So it could be the case that the EU Commission would come up with a system uh, which relies much more on performance standards and direct regulation, which would be, from my point of view, a disaster because such a scheme would not be able to deliver minus 55% by 2030. So in that sense, Europe should be courageous enough to launch now a paradigm shift. I hope for that paradigm shift, and I would say uh, the likelihood is currently not too bad. It depends very much on the Eastern European countries. So let's see, but uh, it's a reasonable likelihood. And Otmar, we, we definitely have to do that. Uh, we coined that what we call the magic formula. To have zero emission in transportation, you need great industry products, broad offering. You need a working infrastructure, whether charging for electricity or H2 for fuel cell. 
and you need cost parity. And those three factors are linked with a, like a multiplication. That means if one factor is zero, then the entire equation is zero. At the moment, all three factors are zero. Oh, zero. Yeah. So, so that's easy to calculate. But even if now two factors are not zero, and we as the industry, and I can speak not just for Daimler, I can speak for the entire European truck industry. We are feverishly working, you know, at a broad, comprehensive offering of electric and fuel cell trucks. I know it from every competitor. And if you follow the press, I think there's not a single quarter where not someone is launching a new variant of an electric truck or have a breakthrough when it comes to fuel cell. Uh, and we will continue at a real good pace. So I'm, I'm pretty positive that by the mid of this decade, we'll have a really broad offering here. On the other side, the infrastructure industry has to play catch up. And as more trucks we deliver, as more difficult that become. But then comes cost parity in play. Yeah. And therefore, we need to work parallel on all three factors. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I'm very, very pleased to hear what you are saying about the attitude of, of the industry. So let's hope that uh, the signals are heard by the regulators. The most important one is that it's a long-lasting technology we have. Yeah, a truck runs a million kilometer easily. So whatever we bring has to have the same durability, longevity. The infrastructure in, is, in my opinion, a huge challenge mm -hmm. uh, and is actually, uh, and therefore I like your carbon tax proposal because for me, a more, even more difficult pass is has the energy industry, yeah, because it makes absolutely no sense to burn coal to charge a battery or to burn natural gas to create uh, H2, then you better burn it in the truck itself. It, it helps the climate more. And therefore, we take the coal phase out in Europe already as taken for granted. So we are now in a, on a good trajectory, but nevertheless, this has to be done. And without a, a fully decarbonized power sector, we shouldn't talk about electrification, direct electrification of the transport sector, right? So that's for sure. But I have a question to you. So what do you see as the most important challenge? Who should build up the infrastructure part? In my opinion, the infrastructure part has to be built up by the same guys who provide us today the infrastructure. Yeah, the big oil companies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or you can add uh, the big gas companies when it comes to H2, or you can add the big electricity companies. But the investment, I mean, the, the, the core is the investment in energy generating, let's say, solar parks, wind parks. That is the key. And that is something those guys are much more equipped to do so than we do. And they are much more equipped to go, what I call always a retail part, to come to the customer, to bring the electric cable to a truck stop or to build up a H2 distribution center. Yeah, like you have today a gasoline station. Uh, that is what those guys are good in. They are completely focused on as we, so they have to change. And that, in my opinion, uh, is going in the direction. I agree. And basically, we lost the whole last decade, to be honest. Yeah, so this was very unfortunate because we had, of course, the financial crisis and other important things. But uh, over the last decade, the, the progress was at the national scale, very modest. And at the international scale, still over the last decade, the emissions increased uh, by 2% per year. Otmar, potentially one last sentence to our audience. 
Are you generally optimistic looking into the future with all those challenges ahead or are you cautiously uh, realistic or are you truly pessimistic that we get it done? I'm not pessimistic. I'm, I would say I'm, I'm realistic and I like the European Green Deal in general. So I hope that uh, this uh, European Green Deal will not turn into a regulatory mess a regulatory tsunami, but really provides a reasonable framework for for markets and for business. So in that sense, I'm modestly uh, optimistic. And one thing which makes me very optimistic is that five years ago, if you talk to people in industry, people were not interested in, in this climate change issue. Most people in industry, to be honest, thought that's a crazy idea of a few crazy academics. But now the mood in the industry is completely different. Industry wants to move forward, and they are waiting now for the politicians to create the appropriate framework. And that's a completely different thing. So there is no excuse for politicians to say the customers, the citizens, and the industry uh, and the consumers do not support us. So there is a request uh, from the civil society, from the industry to do something. And uh, this is something which makes me optimistic, modestly optimistic. Okay, great last work, Otmar. Thanks for being today with us. Thanks for your insight in a very important pillar to go to zero emissions. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I once more learned that carbon pricing is not easy, but that it's absolutely necessary to get what we all want, a successful CO2-neutral road transport. So thanks, everyone out there for listening. That is for today. Please join us again for our next episode on Transportation Matters, because transportation truly matters for all of us. Until then, take care and stay healthy. That was Transportation Matters, the CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. Our next episode will be available on the first Wednesday of next month. If you enjoyed what you've heard, Share this episode and subscribe to Transportation Matters on your preferred podcast platform. You can do this by tapping the follow or subscribe button right next to the podcast title.